Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. Since the beginning, artists have been under pressure to create work that embodies proper morals. Art had to honor the church or glorify the state, or else the artist could be imprisoned, tortured, even killed. Even today, pop culture critique focuses largely on a work's ability to impart appropriate social values. Is Black Widow feminist enough? What does the live-action Lion King remake say about found family? In this episode of Right Good, we're paying tribute to art that isn't here to teach you right from wrong. Art that's amoral and shocking and offensive. Art that some people might call degenerate. Joining us is Jack Guignol of the podcast, Bad Books for Bad People. Jack, tell us about your podcast. Why do you like bad books and what makes them for bad people? Our podcast, I do it with uh, my friend Tenebris Kate, basically stems out of something we were already doing. We, you know, Whenever one of us would find a kind of wild ass book, we would bring it to the other and be like, you know, wanna, do you want to read this thing and pair notes? So basically, we just started recording that conversation and kind of making it a more regular thing. But why bad books? I think we settled on that name because the the idea of what constitutes a bad book is really wide and nebulous. And we, we like to, to play with that, right? Books can be bad, like they're just badly written, like you don't like them, you don't like what they're doing. It's a bad book. But then there's other kinds of bad books, like bad is subversive or like bad is in badass, like it's doing something you hadn't seen before that's kind of exciting. So we like to delve into that category of what badness is and just see what's in there, right? Explore the gamut of what that can mean. Right. That sounds really cool. Okay. Um, sorry, I thought you were going to say something. I will move oh, on. Yeah. So let's uh, talk a little bit about the history of the term degenerate art. My under I thought it started with the Nazis. I know it definitely got big as a term because the Nazis in 1937, the Nazis put on two big art exhibitions in Munich. There was the first one they called the Great German Art Exhibition, which showcased ideal art, which is a lot of kitschy neoclassical shit, pretty blonde ladies, strong looking soldiers, nationalistic stuff, things like that. And then separate from that, they had the Degenerate Art Exhibition, which showed modernist paintings, non-representational art, abstract art, which it exhibited in what it called a special insanity room, art by Jewish or leftist artists, art that insulted the troops, art that offended the dignity of German women, and so on. And in particular, they really found abstract and non-representational art particularly offensive. A sign by the entrance read, 
in the paintings and drawings of this chamber of heart. Oh, somebody's setting off fireworks. Damn. Oh, well. <laughs> in the paintings and drawings of this chamber of horrors, there is no telling what was in the sick brains of those who wielded the brush or the pencil. And I think it's worth here noting that there's a lot of sour grapes in here. Hitler was a failed painter who made boring, realistic illustrations of buildings. He was it's a little Thomas Kincaid shit, kind of. Yeah, it's, can you imagine though, the mindset is so alien from where I'm coming from. Like, I imagine this is, you're going to the, the theater, right? And there's two different screens. One of them is showing like a film called Happy German Family. And you're going to get blonde people standing in fields of wheat in that movie. And the second movie is called like Crazy Chainsaw Motherfucker, right? Like, <laughs> I already know which one I want to go see. I'm definitely going to that one. Right. It's not the one Hitler wants me to see. Right, right. Like, so, the, the bad one? Like, degenerate art. Fuck yeah. Let me go in there. Let me check that shit out. That looks crazy. Art that insults the dignity of German women. It sounds really hot. <laughs> there's a level of like disingenuous here like here too right with the whole degenerate art project in nazi germany because even though they had this show to ostensibly illustrate the ills of degenerate art that they sold some of that stuff to make a profit right right and they were still exhibiting it people were they were still putting it on display and people were looking at it yeah and they picked out pieces this has international value so let's not destroy it even though we believe it to be the biggest evil in the world let's sell it because also the status quo likes money right right and and of course th there's going to be some curiosity and interest on it from the people who are condemning it i'm thinking of like how much attention conservatives played paid to wap and just like how they kept, sh they're like, this is filthy, but they're still showing clips of it and talking about the lyrics in great detail and just dissecting every bit of it. I mean, on some level, right? You start to think, is it just the attraction of the alien and the unknown? Is it just because they've never experienced firsthand a wet ass pussy? <laughs> Quite possibly, right? I mean, in Ben Shapiro's case, evidently not. Oh, I, yeah, that oh. guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah to be like so against what he would consider degenerate art it's crazy how much he's a character out of like american psycho right like <laughs> like come on my wife who's a doctor assures me that a woman's breasts feel like bags of sand yeah. i don't know what you filthy liberals think <laughs> it's very clear Oh, God, it was extraordinary. So I thought it started with Nazis, but apparently it didn't. It, the, the term degenerate art goes back further than that. Yeah, in a sense, we can trace it to some other earlier literary and critical theories. For example, in the 19th century, toward the end of the 19th century, there's a big concern in Europe about degenerate art or decadent art. And one of the conservative cultural critics of the time who was very concerned about this issue was a man named Max Nordau, who actually wrote a book called Degeneration, in which he talks about specific works, specific authors that are contemporary to his era that he's writing in, that he considered degenerate, and that experiencing their artworks could actually cause degeneracy in the audience. And by degeneracy, he means both mental illness, like it could cause psychological damage, 
but he also means it in a, a sort of physical de-evolutionary sort of framework, right? But like you'll become weak and effete and homosexual perhaps, right? Like, oh no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So already you see the same sort of categories that, you know, we could talk about in Nazi theories of degenerate art already exist in the 19th century. So a lot of the books that he talks about are, in Nordau's book, he talks about like people who belong to religions that are not mainstream Judeo-Christian religions. He definitely talks about works by queer authors and so on, right? Like it's the same sort of categories you'll get reiterated throughout the sort of degenerate art project. Before we started recording, you mentioned that this artist was actually Jewish? Yeah, yeah. Max, yeah, Max Nordau was a, a definitely like a Zionist proponent. Like he was very hardcore about this, right? So it's interesting how this concept is transmissible across conservative regimes that would not agree with each other, right? Like yeah. obviously, yeah, the Zionist guy is not going to break bread with, with Hitler, right? <laughs> but at heart, they both had the same project of labeling art as degenerate when it's something they want to exclude, cast out, right? abject from their idealized vision of society. I'm curious, uh, what were some of the contemporary authors that this book names as degenerate? Anyone we might recognize? Oh, yeah, yeah. Big names. Oscar Wilde is a very well, important yeah, one. Right, yeah, right? definitely pick him. Yeah, yeah. There are differences, right? Like the Nazi regime had some kind things to say about Richard Wagner, but Max Nordau does not like the, the, the classical music of Richard Wagner. To him, that's, that's got something going on that's too mythological, too mystic. It's not grounded in like the Judeo-Christian tradition, a little too pagan, perhaps. So he's on the shit list, right? And yeah, so you, you get artists and painters and musicians, writers of that fairly well-known caliber. Yeah, yeah. Those are big names. Oscar Wilde, that, that doesn't terribly shock me, though, that he'd be labeled a degenerate. Yeah, no, it was, it was very easy at the end of the 19th century to use Oscar Wilde as your poster child for degenerate art and what happens when you allow yourself to degenerate. Right. Uh, poor Oscar Wilde. Right. Oh. I mean, when you think about the trials that he was put to, right? right? He, went, he was imprisoned for several years of hard labor. And it really does center on this idea of degenerate art, too, because on the stand, they would read passages from his work to him and then make him explain them, right? The implication is if they can catch you out as the creator of quote-unquote degenerate art, ipso facto, you are a degenerate, right? I mean, that's the logic here. Right. Right. If you made this thing, then you're a bad person. It means you're a certain kind of person, right? And therefore right. can be punished. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting to me that the term degenerate art goes back even before the Nazis, because most of the time, if you're going to Google this stuff, if you Google degenerate art, it just brings up Nazis, 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 Nazis. It started with Nazis and it, it <laughs> didn't. But of course, the idea that art has to be moral and that art can can damage people's spirits or damage them morally or turn them into bad citizens, that goes back a very, very, very long way. Plato was worried about art harming people and making them worse. Aristophanes, in some of his plays, suggested that people who wrote prose as opposed to poets were ruining society somehow, or at least they were a, a 
sign of the degeneration of civilization that just prose writers instead of poets. Yeah, and I think that that also is something we see coming back again, right? In the 18th century, we get the rise of the novel as a form, right? the great prose format, really. And there was so much cultural anxiety happening about what the novel was going to be. And like really some like pretty intense literary battles trying to shape the nascent form of the novel. There's a very hardcore like realist contingent and by, by realist, they also mean moral is attached to realism. Mm. Whereas on the other hand, there's these other kind of tangents that want to do something more creative or something a little more outre. The romantics or like the beginnings of the Gothic novel. Mm. Which the Gothic novel was judged as a kind of, they didn't have the word yet, but it was a degenerate form. Oh, I bet. Yeah, because who was the main audience for the gothic novel? Girls. Well, yeah, young middle class girls. And, and these girls novels... reading about about romances that are, are yeah. a very bad idea and death and, and disorder and terrible and, things. And like disobeying their parents. And one of the really wild things in the 18th century was this notion of the, the female protagonist choosing her own husband for love. Right. Without her family's approval or intervention so yeah like you start to eat the fact that a woman might be reading about like romance like hints of sexuality questioning religion all of these things label the gothic as a, a kind of degenerate form that like people were worried like if your daughter gets hold of one of these novels she's going to get ideas a young mm -hmm. woman of her class is not supposed to have that's right. Apart from the, the Gothic novel panic, throughout the Middle Ages, the church had such a massive influence on art. Secular theater was considered deeply offensive and blasphemous for a long time. For a really long time, theater in Europe had to impart morals and religious lessons. You could not have secular theaters. So as that went on, theater troops just had a lot more fun doing devil stuff. Because dressing up as a little devil and prancing around is really, really fun. And dressing up as like a, an angel and looking wholesome is extremely boring. So these theater troops that were supposed to impart good religious morals would just become people prancing around dressed as demons, acting like total degenerates and just having an absolute blast. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it backfired it, a little bit. Right. It, it, it's interesting how that changes in the 19th century as well, because in England, at least, you couldn't perform plays that were based on religious themes. Huh. That was actually outlawed. Uh, this oh, wow. is, again, to go back to Oscar Wilde, he tried to stage his play Salome, which right. obviously has this biblical figure. The authority that you have to submit this to in, in England was like, hell no, you are not doing this play in England. Like, it's not happening. So it had to be performed in France instead. Mm. Go figure. Yeah. So, so we had the 19th or yeah, that's the 19th century. 20th century America saw the Hayes Code, which imparted this series of decency rules on American movies that it banned open sexuality. It, de it banned a de depiction of queerness. It banned pessimistic endings. It banned an, any kind of ending where the good guys won. Immorality always, always, always had to be punished. I think it also restricted how people were allowed to kiss on screen too. You had to like kiss in a very specific way and you couldn't move your mouth too much or hold it that long. So that's why 
actors in 1940s movies, like they sort of, when they kiss, they mash their faces together and their necks don't move or anything. And yeah, it's like I don't, really strange looking. It's just because any kind of like natural human kiss would be considered way too sexy and you couldn't do that. Yeah, I, I don't know if this is apocryphal. Maybe you know. But was it true that for an on-screen kiss, at least one foot had to be touching the ground at all times? Oh, I don't know that one. Right, so I think the theory is if the characters are like kissing on a bed they're not really going to bed together because one foot's touching the ground. Everything is okay. That would not surprise me. But yeah, I, I, I wouldn't sure. be surprised if some censor said, no, you can't, you can't, you can't shoot it that way. You're going <laughs> to imply, you're going to imply, you're near a bed. You can't do this. Yeah. Show something wholesome like a stabbing. Well, that's why you see so many of those sitcoms where they have separate beds, like <laughs> to prevent that. And I think like the first couple like during this, like end of this period where they were actually in bed together might be the Munsters. Oh my God. Right? <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. That's hilarious. I, all I do know is that apparently the first sitcom couple that got pregnant was I Love Lucy. Yeah, yeah. And it was Absolutely. a huge deal also because husband's Cuban, so it's kind of like interracial marriage. Yeah, what the hell is a Cuban, well, right? Nobody knows. <laughs> the Hayes Code, following that, the Red Scare, which chased away a lot of leftist or leftist sympathizing artists out of the industry and just ruined their lives and ruined their careers and made movies pretty boring for 20 or 30 years. But aside from the U.S., there was also the movement of Soviet realism. I'm not sure how familiar with it you are. I'm not super familiar with it either. I'm a little bit familiar with a Soviet realist novel, but not a ton. Yeah, my understanding is I'm more familiar with it in terms of visual art, which again, really kitschy, really, it has to be realistic portrayals of things. They didn't like abstraction. They didn't like non-representational modernist art. And it had to be these realistic, but idealized portrayals of a good soldier or the proletarian worker harvesting some corn or something like that and it was all like extremely kitschy and, and corny and it and it's fun in an ironic way but imagine that's the only sort of art that's socially acceptable that's pretty fucking bleak right and it's ultimately didactic right and that's the sort of point of it is to teach you a lesson yes right. if like i'm sure that the good proletarian worker never comes to an ill-fated end He's always rewarded for his sacrifice to the nation. I'm sure that's how it goes. And it's just, it's incredibly boring. Ugh. <laughs> and just stylistically really, really boring. And I think today in, in contemporary fiction, and I'm including literary fiction in that, we have something one might call capitalist realism or neoliberal realism. Now, by neoliberalism, I don't mean that's what happens when corporations are woke. By neoliberalism, what we mean is rejection of structuralist economics in favor of deregulation, privatization of social services, austerity, and free market solutions to social slash political problems. The neoliberal ideal is that the free market is the best way to deal with anything and fix things. And there's an irony there, isn't there? It strikes me that the degenerate art project at its heart is always about limiting limiting the, the kind of ideas people can encounter. I mean, would you agree to that? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, and it seems like it's counterintuitive for this capitalist or a neoliberalist 
idea of realism to be like, look, we're the free market, but we don't really want other kinds of depictions out there. We want ones that glorify the free market, right? So it, it, it has this claim to the free market or like the marketplace of ideas, when in fact, I think what it really wants to do is limit who can appear in the marketplace of ideas. Right. Who can appear or what kind of movie you can make, what kind of ideas you can show. George Lucas, of all people, actually said that when he was making movies in the 1970s and even in the 80s, he envied Soviet filmmakers because Soviet filmmakers had one rule. Don't criticize the government. Don't piss off the government. That's, that is the one rule you have to follow. American filmmakers had a long ass list of rules that you had to follow. Got to have a happy ending. It's got to be pro-family. It's got to be this. You can't portray that in a negative light. Can't do this. It can't do that. A really long, narrow list of things that, first of all, you're going to have to follow in order to get funding. And secondly, that you'll have to follow in order to make something profitable. We don't think of profitability all the time in terms of censorship, but it can be in a way, like in an, not, not in a, not in a deliberate forceful way, but say if you have a movie that has a downer ending, maybe it's not going to be as profitable. So you got to slap on a happy ending, even when you don't feel like it's truthful, like the ending of Little Shop of Horrors, the filmmakers were forced to slap on a happy ending that they clearly did not want to make because if you watch the happy ending it looks like shit it looks like really cheap and like was filmed in like 20 minutes for a budget of eight dollars and then you watch the original bleak ending that they filmed and it's gorgeous it has amazing puppetry it's just fucking awesome yeah very idea of like test markets or yes a b screenings of different endings for movies gives the lie to art first right like it, it clearly is not like the 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 process now is engineered to cr creating a product not a statement or like a story necessarily yeah. like a story is so basic it's the basic building block of what art does and it's it's tertiary at best yeah, I, I think we can illustrate this really well when it comes to queer representation in big budget movies. There's not a law anymore about ha saying you can't show a queer character, but Disney's not really going to make openly queer characters in their movies because they'll miss out on profit. Maybe they'll miss out on profit in conservative towns. The, maybe they'll miss out on profit in other countries that are a lot more conservative and a lot more homophobic. Nobody's legally forcing them to do this, but they've decided that the profit is more important to them than taking any kind of pro-LGBTQ stance. So any kind of Disney or Marvel movie is not going to have a really openly gay character. If anything, it'll be a character who might be feminine and say, oh, I'm not terribly interested in women. Wink! In a way that films did during the Hays Code era, it's handling homosexuality in the exact same way but and, and there's what, not a legal code in 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 action it's just well we want to make that money in singapore right right and the thing i find most disheartening about that is how willing their core audience is to play ball with that idea like that like you said that sort of that like barest winking or hinting of queerness attached to a character 
And there will be fans who are like, this is fantastic representation. Right. I've never, I've never seen the like, I feel so seen. I feel so represented. I feel like I want to give them a lot of money for a mouse hat with a rainbow on it. Yeah. You are willing to have crumbs from the table. I don't, I'm not yeah. a self-help guy, but I'm like, love yourself a little bit oh, more. absolutely. Right? Like, come yeah. on. The thing that drove me insane was seeing how many people talked about how Luca is, oh, it's this LGBT, it's this wonderful queer movie. And yeah, I'm sure there's a queer reading about it and that it's, there's this intense friendship between two boys who are different from other people. Like, yeah, okay, there's a queer reading of that, but it's not overtly none of them said neither of them says to the other i love you you're my boyfriend let's make out or whatever and at the same time at the time that luca was getting all of this positive press all this positive feedback for being oh it's so queer it's such a great queer coming of age story that was right after disney bought out a smaller animation studio and canceled a project that was 75% done. It was a movie in progress of being made. The, the filmmaker said they had about 10 months left to finish it called Nimona. And it was an animated kids movie that was actually openly queer. The main character was non-binary. And another pair of couples, another pair of characters, major characters were in a same-sex relationship. And it wasn't just, oh, they're good friends, wink. It's no, they are in a romantic relationship they are in love right right yeah it's like with a i haven't watched it so i could be speaking out of my ass here but i don't yeah. think i am but uh loki right that that show that right. was just out and people were so overjoyed that like in conversation loki would admit that he had relationships with other men it's okay like that's kind of the bare minimum that a queer relationship can exist in just being mentioned as context. Obviously we're not going to get Loki balls deep in some other guy. It's a, it's a Disney film. I get it. It's a superhero movie. I get that too, but I don't know. There's so, there's so much middle ground that could be explored. That seems like it would be perfectly acceptable, except they're worried about the purse strings. So of course you're not going to get that. But don't be happy for the crumbs. Yeah, don't. Love yourself. There, There is another table with a meal. Yeah, just don't fucking settle that. for that nonsense. Come on. <laughs> don't don't be like fucking Renfield over here. Like <laughs> worshipping the master, eating bugs. Don't do that. So we've got that, and that's just one example of it. Another side of neoliberal realism or capitalist realism in sort of high snooty culture. The Iowa... Writer's Workshop actually has a lot of influence by the CIA, and I know this sounds like a tinfoil hat thing to say, but nope, there's CIA funding in this. The CIA did fund a heck of a whole lot of art, especially non-representational art in the United States in the mid-20th century as part of this Cold War initiative. And part of the CIA's influence on culture is to promote in literary fiction the show-don't-tell rule, an emphasis on interior domestic stories rather than political stories, moving away from quote-unquote ideology in literary fiction, which in my opinion, if you're writing your work's going to be political, that doesn't necessarily mean it's like you're standing on a soapbox screaming at people, but the politics you hold end up in your work so when you end up trying to avoid ideology in your fiction, 
you're really not. What you're doing is you're just erasing the dominant ideology. You're making it invisible, but it's still there. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's what I mean, I guess, when, I, when I'm thinking about how the, 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 the process of creating degenerate art or labeling something as degenerate art is all about limiting the mind share, right? Like limiting the ideas out there. How do you do that is you make it seem like one idea is naturally occurring, right? The status quo ideology right. has to fade into the background just to make it look like it's organic. And obviously the way we should live and the way we should think and what we should do, how we should live our lives. So all of that stuff, I think, goes into that. Like, yeah, let's just get like no political stories and like ideology just faces itself. So, yeah, good, good job, CIA. <laughs> right, right. So in this instance, all injustice is just the conflict you have to overcome in order to achieve your greatness. That's an example or an example, I'm going back to Disney and Pixar again, of depicting everything, including the afterlife, as a white collar office job, often for a private corporation. <laughs> like Monsters, Inc., like it's an it's ink. It's not a government thing. It's ink. And it's like, okay, this really magical, mis mystical thing. It's a corporation. And Coco, the afterlife is border patrol. And everything represents some kind of bureaucracy, often a kind of corporate bureaucracy. Because you can't, even when you're stretching to the limits of the imagination, like the afterlife or monsters or something that's so fantastical and beyond understanding where we still can't look at any system as being run any differently than like an office corporation uh, yeah. <laughs> how far we've fallen from tim burton's beetlejuice right oh. that also has the like office place and bureaucracy and like, take your number it's like a million digits long but that's clearly satire, right? Like right. It's, clearly, it's clearly digging at how ingrained all that is. And of course it would repeat itself in the afterlife. I don't get the satire in these more modern depictions. I, I don't think they are. I think they're like just a stunted imagination. Like the office is all there is and it's all there will be. Right. This is the only, this is what adulthood means. This is everything is in terms of this. Yeah, and just imagine, imagine how bad Dante's Inferno would be <laughs> if every layer of the Inferno was just like a different cubicle, right? Like Ugh. it would be, it'd be not art for one, and it would be internable. Like you could not survive reading it. It would, yeah, it would just be unforgivably bad art. Yeah. But that's what we have over and over again. Everything is workplace. Everything is workplace. We've taken the concept of found family. So much is based on found family. And I've noticed that found family in pop culture is so much about basically your coworkers. The found family characters always find is people who are working together on a project for a specific organization. And that's what family is. It's work. It's your coworkers. Yeah, I wonder if you could actually chart that out via sitcoms, because I'm, I'm no expert, but it seems like sitcoms did used to be very family-centric. Like, that was the comedy of them. But so many of them now are just workplace and, like, right. the found family. Like, The Office has a lot to answer for. Yeah. Like, it, it does. The um, Office, Parks and Rec. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's got to be a thing. Hmm. Even yeah. even like community, the one about like the community college. Right. Like it, that's just like the intermediary step before you go out and get the office job. Like yeah. it, it feels preparatory. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other alternatives to that. E- even in the family sitcom er- era, we did at least have like Cheers, which is a sitcom based on a bar. <laughs> yeah, but even that's weird because they go to the bar when they're done working. So it's almost like an extension of the office in a way. I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm just spitballing here, but. A little bit. It's more like the na- the community. Yeah, the that sort could... of here's where you're going for community if you're an average Joe. You go for a beer and you see right. you see the regulars and you, hey, it's Norm. Right, right. Yeah, I like that reading better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just the idea of something, some kind of community that's not based on the nuclear family or the office. And I, I don't know. How many of those do we have? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's family a lot. There's you know, we got. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ugh, bummer. So we've talked about literary fiction. Let's talk a little bit about contemporary SFF, moral fiction in contemporary science fiction and fantasy, and definitely it comes into play in YA too. In genre fiction, there's a really strong emphasis on representation, particularly on quote-unquote positive or uplifting representation. I was once taught a rule that people cutely called the no Highlander rule, which is that if you have a bad character of a certain marginalized background, then you have to balance that out with a good character of that same background. They called it the no Highlander rule. I personally call it the Goofus and Gallant rule because it's for fucking children. Like, Can you even have that balance now, though? Or is it just straight positive representation with no no counterbalance. I wonder about that sometimes, right? Like, yeah, I've definitely seen examples where there, there is a kind of nod toward an existing like ethnic minority, uh, the world building basics of a fiction. And like, whoever belongs to that in the fiction, there will be no, no malfactors, right? No bad versions of them. They cannot be bad people because they're a minority and therefore must be positively depicted which I think is actually really a dangerous idea when you get down to it. Like, I don't know, I, I recently read a Carmen Maria Machado's uh, fictionalized memoir. Oh, and she nice. actually, Yeah, she actually had like, a thing in there about this, right? About queer representation. We do actually need to see evil queers sometimes. Yeah. Like, like obviously, like, if all of your villains just happen to be queer or queer-coded, you might want to examine what's going on in your brain. But if you can't conceive of queer people doing bad things, being troubled or holding, I don't know, bad perspectives on other people, I think you're doing a disservice about what it means to be queer because queer is a large spectrum of people who are vastly different sometimes, right? Like boiling it down to this positively depicted monolith, 
I think really does a disservice to the people in those communities. Right, right. And it's also worth noting, well, who's saying what a good marginalized person is? Yeah. Right? What standard are you measuring good by? If you are a white person trying to create an exemplary Latinx character, your idea of what makes a good Latinx person is probably going to be influenced by white supremacy and imperialism, inevitably, and something I've noticed a lot, say, on TV. Something yeah. like half of criminals or, or <laughs> half of Latinos are portrayed as criminals, and the other half, it seems like, are portrayed as tough cops. Right. Who, so to, the way to be a good Latino is to lock the bad Latino in a cage. That's well, yeah. what a good Latino does. You, uh, yeah. you lock the other people in a cage. Fucking cool. <laughs> it's really good. Galindo, great. Yeah, I think that the basic formula for a good minority and a lot of like poorly done representation is, does this person make me feel safe and okay? Like, do they not upset my status quo? And if they don't, they are good. Yeah. It's like very simplistic at, at, at its basis, I think. Right. It's basic and it's not challenging these underlying assumptions of, well, who says the status quo is good? Oh, you don't you don't want a queer character who's really promiscuous because that's a stereotype. It's like, well, who says that monogamy is the only way? Why, why is that the only thing? Like, who made that rule? Right, right. Yeah. It's, all, it's like challenging assumptions, right? They're like... Well, no. Again, sort of the CIA thing about have the ideology disappear into the background. You don't want a character maybe that starts making you question things like, hey, what about what about marriage? Is it actually that important as an institution? Do we need to defend it like in every case? Yeah. Oh, here's our positive queer representation. It is a middle class, same sex couple that lives in the suburbs and both have middle class respectable jobs and they're monogamous and they have 2.3 children and golden retrievers so well, and and they don't do anything weird or kinky like who, who the yeah. fuck says that like what why is that the ideal what why why is the good queer person someone who acts like a boring 1950s heterosexual person <laughs> yeah why is the good queer person clearly a queer person self-editing their life right because you know that that representational positive queer couple i bet we don't ever see them kiss because no. that might upset somebody but we'd accept that they don't fuck they do not oh, they, oh, might, no, they might raise no. an eyebrow they don't fuck they certainly don't do anything kinky they I, definitely yeah. don't have any interesting kinks yeah I, I think it's so far beyond that right like we're never just gonna get a scene of their bedroom and there's a bottle of lube on the nightstand we never see that that's <laughs> that doesn't exist they chastely hold hands and go to sleep in their pod like that's about <laughs> it right that's it and it's boring and that again that idea of that's the ideal queer representation is informed by queer phobia and sometimes that's internalized queer phobia i I think queer creators are absolutely guilty of doing this too. Of we need to represent a respectable face to the to the public at large, or else they'll stigmatize us and they'll hate us. I'm sorry, they're gonna they're gonna hate you no matter what. Don't yeah. keep shrinking yourself in order to try to please someone who doesn't like you. <laughs> that's and, and that's and a I, terrible yeah. thing to do. Love and yourself. I, 
I totally get it. Like, on one hand, it does feel like a survival mechanism. Look, if we just play by the rules, maybe they won't kill us this time. Like, right. But what sacrifices are sacrifices too far? I think becomes the question, right? Like, how much of yourself are you willing to give up or let the world sand away your rough edges so that you fit into this prescribed hole that really is not something you're particularly interested in fitting into all things considered, right? If you had your ways, you probably wouldn't act this way or put on this kind of separate persona for the benefit of the people you want to like you and not stigmatize you and not burn your house down, things like that. Right, right. But it's boring and reductive and, and, and it's not good for you to try to do that. So I really, really take a lot of umbrage with the emphasis on this quote unquote positive representation that's so big in contemporary SFF right now because it puts such a burden on queer creators, on marginalized creators to just deliver these sort of cute goody two shoes characters who are boring as fucking shit. Yeah, I actually remember when I was in grad school, I took a class. I have no idea what the title of it was, but it was definitely doing a lot with queer representation and especially like minority queer representation. But one thing I noticed, it was a a good class, but I noticed that in everything we read or all the media we were consuming as part of the class, all the queer characters were very similar. They they were kind of the same character, right? Like Mm -hmm. they, they were like urban, they were left leaning in their politics, but like in a very undefined sort of way. Yeah. So no texture there. Yeah. No communists or anything. Oh, no, no, no. No big gay commies. No, no, no. <laughs> they were mad, but not like really mad. You know what I mean? Sassy. Like sassy yeah, yeah. mad. Exactly. And it, it got me really thinking like, well, this is interesting, but there are a lot of possibilities being excluded here. Like, obviously, there are queer people who do not fit this model. And we may not really want to endorse their ideologies, but it's weird how we've erased them as queer people, right? Let's right. a class about queer representation. But, you know, you're not going to read Yukio Mishima, right? Like, he, he is not appearing. That crazy samurai guy is not appearing on the syllabus. He was queer, but we had that whole wanting to restore the emperor of Japan thing with military force. So he doesn't really fit the narrative, I guess. Yeah. Moving on from representation, I think in genre fiction, there's also a very strong demand for a clear cut moral or a clear cut message. Message stories are very in right now. Stories where the speculative elements are very, very clearly an extremely straightforward political allegory, a very straightforward metaphor. And there's not really room for extra interpretation. It's just very clearly, oh, the aliens represent immigrants, or blah, 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 represents that. And it's like, when when you're taking that route, I feel like all you're doing is you're drawing a political cartoon where everything's labeled. Yeah, and again, it's right? Like pretty I, boring. I think if you're the audience, you should demand better because... How do you not feel insulted by that? I mean, people like it. It it gets award buzzes. It gets Hugo nominations and so on and so forth. But I just find it deeply dissatisfying. I'm sure the first time I saw it, I was like, wow, that's really clever. But I, I've seen enough of them. Star Trek was doing this in the 1960s. That's 60 years ago. 
let's move on. But there's ways of doing that too, that are more interesting and complicated. And that's the kind of book that I'm personally drawn to. So I guess I have a vested interest in promoting something a little more challenging, right? Like Octavia Butler, her books are really good. They're well-written. They have very interesting ideas, but the ideas aren't like A to B, right? To get to the, the moral message, if there is one, it's not a clear path. And there's things that are going to trouble you that you're going to need to work out in your brain as an adult along the way. And Toni Morrison's the same way. Like Beloved is a great horror novel, oh, even brilliant. though it is, you know, literary. And it's not clear cut. Like it's not saying something so simple as, look, slavery was terrible. Yeah, <laughs> That's true. And that is content within the book. But its presentation of that idea is much more multifaceted and complicated. And that's what I want as a reader. Like I want to, I want to do some work, right? Yeah. Like I want to get in there with the, with the author and like see what they're doing and have to do some of the heavy lifting of what they're putting down. But yeah. Yeah. And, and I feel like if all you have is a really straightforward message, then maybe write an essay or something. Just. Well, <laughs> and what do you, what do you think? The, what do you think the audience for that gets out of it? I, I I feel like there there is that sort of nodding of that affirmation. Yeah. Of like, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I feel good. Right. It's sort of like, I agree with this. Therefore, number one, I'm not guilty of whatever's being, you know, challenged here. And number two, I'm a good person. Yeah. Right? Like validation. I, I don't I don't read to feel good about myself in that way, I guess. Yeah. Like I don't I don't want that to be the marker of my character. Like I, I would rather, I'd rather I do something that people can then judge as like a good or bad action rather than me being like, yeah, I know I'm good because I read this book. Let's see. Among SFF, there's also currently in Vogue, there's a demand for uplifting stories, quote unquote, uplifting stories. Even dark stories about injustice have to have a triumphant ending for the oppressed. So what happens very often is the protagonist who belongs to a marginalized group finds a way to harness some kind of supernatural power and destroys the baddies. I've seen this one story over and over and over and over and over and over again. And again, they're cathartic and they're fun and it's wish fulfillment and and it is kind of fun, but that's all it is. It's the same story over and over and over again. And it feels a little shallow to me to turn homophobia into a generic superhero origin story or something. And and ironically, it almost feels a little bit Randian, a little like an Ayn Rand novel, like, ah, the masses keep us down because they're jealous of our natural superiority. And once we're in charge, we will crush them. And again, it's a very attractive fantasy, especially if you're someone who's marginalized. But where does it lead? If the moral of your story is like, ah, and then she killed all the men, do you, do you sincerely really just want to kill all the men? Like, do, you don't right? like you, you don't actually want to do that. It, it's not going to be that clean. Just why, why, where does this actually lead? It, it's not really any kind of, of goal or it's, it's, it's not a very deep idea. It doesn't go anywhere. It's a dead end. And in some instances it really falls flat. Like, if we're talking about a form of marginalization of disability, of ableism, especially if it's mental illness, 
you don't seriously think that neurotypical people abuse the mentally ill because they're jealous of your superiority, do you? Like they, no. Yeah. Depression isn't a superpower. It, yeah, it really disguises the underlying Be issues, right? Being sad and not being good at getting an orgasm is not a superpower. You're not going to be able to defeat your enemies through through, through the power of anhedonia. It's and, not going to fucking happen. And that makes it actually seem very Christian in a way, too. Like the meek will inherit the earth sort of feeling, right? That, look, I know we're marginalized and oppressed, but if we just keep our heads down and take the abuse, ultimately we win. Yeah. We'll and keep I, quiet and then we'll find the secret magic thing that will allow us right. to defeat them. And and again, I understand like this this childlike idea of I I want this. Th this feels good, but that's not going to happen. This is a dead end. This isn't going anywhere. And I've seen and I see this one same story over and over and over again. And it's like, guys, let's time let let's move on. Let's grow the fuck up. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's fine if that sort of story remains in the realm of fantasy. But the problem is when that fantasy becomes aspirational because it's an aspiration that can't be fulfilled in real life. So it, right. it's, it's like leading you astray in that sense, right? Uh, have you seen the show Penny Dreadful by any chance? No, I haven't. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I just wrote like an academic article that will probably be published like next year or something about it. And like, it's got the same feeling like people wanted something out of its marginalized main character that the show didn't give them. Like she doesn't get a good ending. Like she suffers tragically in the end of the show. And people were really invested in this character. They wanted her to like kind of girl boss it out and like triumph over masculine adversity. And she doesn't. And people were very upset about this. But I like that. I like the intentionality of, look, you can be the great, compelling, beautiful, interesting main character, and the world still crushes you sometimes. Like, that just feels so brutally honest, even though it is a fantasy show with vampires and werewolves right. and the devil. I feel like that's telling you something pretty fucking real, actually, about the way the world operates. And I appreciate the downer ending of it. I get why people were upset, but yeah, I think they need to look at it again. Yeah, I think that's truthful. And, and it's empathetic, too, if all of your shows are these wish fulfillment fantasies about a marginalized person who's strong enough to overcome. Well, what does that say about real life people who are marginalized who aren't? strong enough to overcome is it like well you you just didn't try hard enough oh yeah. you got a mental illness and you didn't manage to defeat all of the abusive neurotypicals i <laughs> guess you didn't believe in yourself enough like no. right, right and what? there's a there's there's a swap there too right where it's always it always boils down to like effort like well they tried really hard and therefore yeah. they won which erases all the systemic things that are moving against a real person in the real world who is facing the same issues like it just erases all the structural stuff that makes the world the fucked up place it is well no it's just individual agency you just got to try really hard and then you'll win no yeah sometimes the deck is stacked against you and there's no amount of effort that will save you, right? And, like, and you see liberal people pushing these narratives, ignoring that that's bootstrap stuff. That's conservative, bootstrappy, oh, quit complaining about sexism and just toughen up. I, it's the same exact idea behind it. 
Yeah, I think if you if you imagine the American character as a kind of a lotto ticket scratch off, it doesn't matter if you got the one that says conservative or liberal on it. Once you scratch it off, it says Puritan underneath all of them, <laughs> right? Like it's all that Puritan work ethic, like no good works will be rewarded if not here, then in heaven. So devote yourself to your job and put in effort. And the world isn't stacked against you. It's your personal failings if things don't work out, which, no, that's a lie. That's not the way the world works. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, now, shifting topics a little bit, before we started recording, we noted something. In, in SFF, in contemporary SFF, we don't use the word degenerate art in any serious way. But I have noticed the rise of a word that takes its place that serves the same purpose, which is to say harm or harmful. Some art is harmful. Some art is dangerous. Some, some art causes harm. And what's worse is it causes harm to vulnerable people, to marginalized people. What, well, what harm, what harm does it cause specifically? What, what harm specifically did Isabel Falls helicopter story cause? Because I was told that it was harmful. Many people denounced the story as harmful and called it harmful. But what harm is it? What what did did people die? Did people who read the stories did their eyes fall out? Like what happened? Well, right. it harmed them. It yeah. harmed them. And to me, it's so similar. This concept of harm through upsetting and harmful art. This is just degenerate art by another name. Yeah, I think this is a rebranding, right? Like harmful art, problematic art. It's really getting at the same core concept that there is a kind of art that should not be made. And if you make it, you are bad, right? Like it's a very sort of simple, simple logical process there, I think. Right. And and the vague use of the word harm too. It, it's such a vague word. Well, what does degeneration mean? Well, what does harm mean? The story was harmful. How did it harm someone? It didn't literally kill them. Well, it, it made them... Because if you say it specifically, the story made people sad. So fucking what? Stories do that sometimes. But you yeah, have but to use this vague blanket term called harm. Because when I hear the word harm, our brains fill in the blanks. We Our imagination goes to the ap apocalyptic scenarios. And when we hear harm or when we hear unsafe, we think like, oh my God, the story raped someone. Like, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. It's actually a really writerly technique they're using, though. Like, it is. It's very clever. It's very deliberate. They it, know because they use it a whole... They use that kind of shit all the time, defining someone as being unsafe or scary or dangerous or a predator in this very vague way, knowing very well that your brain is going to fill in, oh, he's he's unsafe. Unsafe? What do you mean unsafe? Is he, is he a molester? And then you find out, oh, he was unsafe because he made a, a tweet with an edgy joke in 2009. Like, <laughs> right, right. What? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like it, it is, it's a very clever tactic for a group of people I don't usually regard as being very clever. Like, it's, I don't know, is it evolutionary now? Are they like evolving? They've Probably noticed not. it gets results. I, th I think right. it's just, it's Pavlovian. They've noticed when I use these words, harm or, or unsafe or predator, I get what I want. Right. So that's what I'm like, like a dog making puppy dog eyes. Right. It's like, like when, when, when I, I do this face, I get the treats. So I'm going to yeah. keep doing it. Well, yeah. When I use this word, all the other monkeys howl, right? Like that's, that's sort of what I think what it breaks down to, but yeah. 
And I find it deeply disturbing to see how much ostensibly liberal group of people have recreated the, this, again, this notion of degenerate art, of art that will harm you in some way if you so much as read it. Yeah, it's very interesting. And I have to admit, like fairly perplexing to me that there are a lot of people online that seem to profess very, if not liberal, sometimes outright like radical political ideas. But when it comes to media, when it comes to art, they have very conservative ideas behind what, what should exist and what shouldn't. And I don't know how you internally reconcile that as a person. Yeah. I, I, I don't know either. I think a lot of people are more conservative than they want to admit, which is fine. Whatever. If you're conservative, you're conservative, but maybe own up to it a little bit. Right. Again, like it's that Puritan thing, right? If you scratch beneath the surface, like they're yeah. just cotton mather, right? Like, or, or, or learn the skill of saying, this isn't for me. I don't like this. Yeah. I'm not going to denounce the, the person for making it, but I, I sure didn't like this. I'm putting it down. I'm walking away. You can do that. If you're reading a, a book and you really don't like it and it makes you feel sick to your stomach, you can close it and you can walk away and it won't follow you. It won't get up and chase you down the street and open its pages and stick itself in your face like a face hugger. It won't do that. Yeah. It, it, again, like it's perplexing. I don't get it. I think the, the walking away thing to me is even that that's the obvious <laughs> answer, right? If you have to, I think you should walk away. But even then, I'm thinking, I finish everything I start reading. It doesn't oh, I matter. Don't. I do not do that. Yeah, and it's fine. <laughs> like, I, I read everything. If I hate it, I will see it through to the bitter end, right? And, and I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's fine because I realize even if I fundamentally disagree with everything this author is putting on the page, that's okay. It lives in my head in a very temporary way. I realize I disagree with it and it reaffirms like why I think what I do. And I'm like, no, this person's fucked. I, I think they're wrong. And that's fine too. It's okay to disagree with things. I don't have to go to war over it though. Like I don't have to chase down every author of every book I've never liked and make them pay. Right. I, ju I just don't feel the need to do that as an adult. I will hide in the bushes outside of Ernest Klein's house. Just kidding. Kidding. Parody. Parody. I mean, if there was one person, I was Yeah, there's not one person who fucking deserves it. It's, it's that guy. But yeah. anyway. Well, uh, we do have an episode on bad books about, uh, about that. God. I, I was challenged to read it by my friend, Kate. Ugh. Yeah, and I've never hate read anything with quite that much intensity. But, but still... Yeah. I've let him live. I've never right. said a word to this man on the internet <laughs> through the Twitter. I've never challenged him, never threatened him. I don't like what he does. I think it's very bad, but whatever. Right. <laughs> so let's let's examine some of the works that get called degenerate. What gets the label degenerate or more often these days harmful? Obviously, we've mentioned queer art sexual art anything sexual or queer is a lot more likely to get labeled degenerate if it's sexual or if it's certain forbidden kinds of sexual if it's kink art by ethnic or cultural minorities is a lot more likely to be declared harmful notice how emerging art forms popular among 
ethnic or cultural minorities tend to get labeled as dangerous. There was the, well, there still is the big moral panic about rap music, moral panic about just black musicians being considered too, too scary. Recently, we had the big moral panic about the wet ass pussy song. Yeah, or like SoundCloud rappers, right? Like I'm old enough that I barely know what that is. And I just don't feel threatened. <laughs> the, the big moral panic about Lil Nas X's uh, Montero song and video, which is, it, it's a fun pop song. The video is great. It's terrific. Yeah. yeah. But he's like doubling up on, you know. Oh, he, he is. Yeah, he's going, he's extremely good at social media. He's amazing at playing that wave of outrage and just, and, and, just and riding like, it to the top. He's brilliant. Right. And he's already working with like four of the categories you've mentioned, right? Like there's something political about doing that. There's definitely something queer about doing that. There's something about religion that doesn't yeah. that orthodoxy. And of course, he's ethnically a minority. So. Right. so he's playing multiple categories at once and just going full fucking tilt. And it's it, it's just fantastic. And, and it probably comes <laughs> from a realization that like, look, I tick these boxes yeah. I have to go for it because there is no place for me otherwise. Like, I'm too full up on the scorecard. No one's going to let me in unless I just burst in with something they can't avoid. And it does come from a personal place, too. I believe he, yeah. was, he did grow up religious. And gosh, what queer kid who was raised religious doesn't have some kind of issue around that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you're coming from something extremely personal. But but yeah, that is another one of the categories of things that get labeled degenerate uh, art that defies religious orthodoxy, art that challenges the church, or art that repurposes religious symbols. Oh yeah, there's so many so many examples of that, like hundreds of years worth of examples, right? The Vatican keeps an archive of things they've condemned, which is amazing, right? Like that's <laughs> that's just building you a reading list. Yeah, God, I want to go in that room. The Vatican's yeah. naughty room, it probably rocks. Oh, absolutely. It's the any, coolest shit, like a at, thousand years of the coolest shit. Yeah, any books that come with extra rules have to be good, right? Like when I was, I was, I did my grad work in London and at the British Library, they have a startlingly large collection of Victorian pornography, which of course nice. I, I needed to read. I'm like, I'm going to do some work. On absolutely. This. Get a bunch of daguerreotypes of men with giant mustaches having oh, absolutely. sex. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the, here's the thing. There are extra rules. When they bring you the Victorian pornography, the rule is that you must keep both hands visible <laughs> on the desk at all times. Nice. Right. Because like, those bare ankles are just going to be too hot. Well, no, the, the Victorian pornography, they did it all, right? Like, it's the real stuff. Like, it's its everything that, like, everyone thinks they invented, right? Like, nice. you know, they, they were doing a hundred, hundreds of years ago, but... That's great. They, they don't have these same stipulations when you ask for, like, the George Eliot novels, for example. Yeah, you can go wherever. Who cares? But, yeah. <laughs> That's terrific. So we've got religious art or art that defies religious orthodoxy. Women's art, I think, often gets gets uh, labeled degenerate or is a little bit more likely to get labeled degenerate if it doesn't fit into that narrow feminine ideal. For instance, the MPAA is much harsher on depictions of female pleasure or of eroticized male nudity 
than it is on sexuality depictions that focus on male desire, male pleasure. So like showing a penis is much, much more dangerous than showing a naked woman. Sure. And a rape scene might get the go ahead, but an extended cuddling scene will not. Just even like basic numbers, like how many blowjob scenes have we had in film where you rarely see the reciprocal? Like just, you know, sheer numbers alone, like it's, it's telling you something, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So art by art by women, art by, well, obviously politically dissident art gets labeled degenerate, especially leftist stuff. And I mean, leftist, not liberal. There is a difference. Leftist art just gets thrown in the big degenerate pile all the time. But aside from art's content, there's the form Art with innovative or experimental structure gets morally condemned. So prose writing and novels when they were new were morally condemned. Jazz, modernist art, film when film was new. Video games were considered uniquely dangerous to kids. There's still a moral concern that video games would turn children into serial killers. Pessimistic art, or art that's deliberately designed to make people feel bad, like pictures that are deliberately ugly. Music that's intentionally dissonant, like the devil's tritone. Or pessimistic art, stories with bleak endings. Pessimistic art gets labeled degenerate or immoral a whole lot more than stories with happy endings. Because stories with pessimistic endings are telling you the status quo isn't okay. The universe we live in is not a just universe. And that's very subversive. Yeah, it's interesting how many of the the form elements, I think, are are attached to class as well, right? Oh, yeah. I think a lot of them come out of, like, class tensions or, like, classes of people who aren't necessarily uh, technically allowed to have art. Like, the novel as a form rises with the middle class becoming something real in the 18th century, like a, a, a dominant force. Right. And, and if I recall, the first novel was written by a woman, too. This was someone who was, she was aristocratic, so she was close enough right. to the upper class, to education, to, in order to learn how to read and write. But she never received formal instruction on how you're supposed to write because women didn't get taught. So she could read and write, but she wasn't instructed in the proper way to do poetry. So she wrote in this form that she created in, in, in this form that she could do because she was just flying blind. And that's what the novel came from. Jazz yeah. too. So many mm-hmm. great jazz musicians did not have formal music training. They couldn't even read sheet music, a lot of them. Or like blues, right? Like very like simpler instruments that are easier for people who don't have the, the benefit of like academy training. And played by people who are of the underclass, who are black in America. It's all coming out from like other kind of interstices of a, a class and whatever sort of identity markers you might attach to yourself. But they're, they're the ones who are outside the status quo almost entirely. Right. And they end up making experimental structure, not even intentional. It's just no one no one hammered into him or no one hammers into them what the structure is supposed to be. So they come up with their own thing. And this new thing is, is different and often it's experimental and, and really innovative. 
And so the form itself scares the shit out of people. Right, right. It's like it's outside of their frame of reference. It's not, again, right, it's not the status quo. Therefore, it's troubling. It presents alternatives. And that's already placing you in a, a point of uncertainty. Right. So it's not just the content, but it's also the form. It's also the structure. Visual art that's non-representational gets labeled degenerate so much over and over and over again kitschy boring here here's a drawing of a blandly attractive lady like that's okay here's a pretty cottage that's okay here's i don't know what the fuck this is it's degenerate it's bad i don't like it (laughs) well it lets you know that there might be other forms of beauty in the world when you've been taught or society has tried to reiterate over and over that there is in fact one proper form of beauty that you should appreciate it's the offering of alternatives that I think really troubles whether it's form or content. It's the notion of ideas that exist outside of the framework that causes that sort of conservative reaction to it. Whoa, you can't, you can't do that. You can't play those three notes. That's that's devil stuff. That's not the three notes we use in mass. So stop. (laughs) And and we get it too. Every once in a while, there's going to be a big scoffing modern art. news story and that an artist did this weird fucking thing. An artist made in a made a cube entirely out of mothballs. What a what a bunch of bullshit. This this artist taped a banana to a wall, blah blah blah. And again, there's this sense that comes with it of ugh, our culture's in decline. We used to have visual art that was that was good. And now we have bananas taped to walls. Yeah. Whence are blonde children in fields of wheat? That's when art was art. <laughs> That's when art was art. It was when I could understand it. So we're still seeing it as degenerate art. We might not call it that, but we are portraying it as a degeneration of culture. Like, ah, oh, statues were supposed to look like this, and now they're weird. Right. It goes back to what you were saying about harm, right? This harm is largely invisible and unprovable, and frankly, not real. It's the same thing with the concept of racial or cultural degeneracy. There is no scientific proof that being exposed to the wrong kind of art will make you syphilitic or autistic or depressed. That's not how these things happen. It's based on this myth of degeneration. Of course, we have to accept it's true. If you have the wrong ideas, bad things happen to you. But in reality... The burden of proof is not really fulfilled on this claim. Yeah, absolutely. So after all this, why defend or engage with immoral, offensive art? Why defend degenerate art? Aside from saying it's the principle of the thing, I'm against censorship. Aside from that, what is the value in degenerate art? For me, I think it is the widening of perspective, right? Like I, I like to understand things fully if I decide I want to understand a thing. And I think that if you only read the prescribed texts, you get a very narrow conception of the entire picture. I mean, this is something I went through as a graduate student who was focusing on the 19th century. You can read the great novels, the canon, the literary canon of the 19th century, our grand literary tradition. You can read all those books, but I think if that's 
all you read, you will have a very poor understanding of the 19th century as a whole, because it excludes so many other voices that existed during this time period. You have to seek out the stuff that got labeled degenerate. You have to read the decadent authors, the naturalist authors, all the people who were doing things that were a little outside the norm. Sometimes these people get credibility after the fact. I think we now think of the romantic poets as being part of the literary establishment, but they weren't at the time. Like they were like destroying these deeply held beliefs about what poetry should be, what it was about. I did not know that at all. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like what that the romantic. Oh, and and then the art education history or literary history education I got was very vague. It was just, and then the romantics happened. Well, I didn't know it was controversial. Oh yeah, yeah. Prior to the romantics, like poetry was a very aristocratic thing, right? It was. If you read some of the like 18th century poetry, it's like very illusion heavy. Like you basically needed a, a classical education to get what they're alluding to. Like, why are they referencing this Greek myth here? Right. You know, right? And it's very, very constrained too in its form, like its meter, like it's very constructed. Where the romantics come along and they're largely not members of the aristocracy. They're more middle class. And they start thinking like, well, no, I want to, I don't want to write about intellectual subjects. I don't want to write about Roman gods. I want to write about like passions. That's what romance is, right? Like the, the, right. the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. As I want to write about on. being horny. Right, exactly. And I am right? not going to talk about Greece. Well, they'll talk about Greece, but maybe like, a little bit, but in a horny way. Exactly, right, right, right. Like, like I'm standing in front of this Grecian urn and studying its beauty so intently that I'm horny for it. That's that's what <laughs> Keats's poem is actually about. Right. So no, like people are like, what are these guys doing? This is not poetry. Like this, this is madness. Why are we letting these guys do this? Who's publishing this stuff? Like it, it was a revolution in the form, right? Without, without the romantics, I don't think we get the poetry we have today, but at the time it was scandalous. These I, guys were out of their minds. In some way, do you think it might be a rejection of, of enlightenment ideals? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like the whole like culture of the Enlightenment that, that really, really promotes cultural values, reason and rationality and self-control is the big one, right? Where romantic poetry is supposedly supposed to spring from a lack of self-control. The romantic poets had this kind of formula. You go to a beautiful place in nature and you sit down and you just let your impressions of this place overtake you. And it spills forth an eruption onto the page, this spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling. That's antithetical to reason and rationality. That's irrational. That's like some Bacchus shit. Like, mm. yeah. So they're not about like calmly ordering the poem and like making sure it fits the, the rhyme scheme and has the correct classical illusions. They're just talking about like how excited by the world they are, which absolutely is like anti-modern and definitely anti-enlightenment in its its trajectory. Nice. <laughs> yeah, the, the Gothic novel did the same thing. Right? Oh like, yeah, yeah, the Gothic novel. It's all about old yeah. times and and some scary remnant of of a less enlightened era and, and wanting to fuck the scary remnant of the less enlightened era. Right, like the characters, even the good ones, are like <laughs> just propelled by emotion 
that is folly, right? An they immense, just, immense attraction to self-destruction. Right. They just do things because they feel they need to. Like nobody nobody works through the plan in a gothic novel, like A to Z. Like they just I feel like I must have this person, therefore I will. Right? Like yeah. it's so anti-enlightenment. Yeah. I have to have Heathcliff. I love him. Why he's terrible. I just right, I, right. I am him. I love him so much. Right, exactly. No, like they they have this toxic, poisonous relationship, but they feel it real deep. And that's all that matters. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the good shit. I mean, so when you focus only on moral and wholesome art, you're limiting your imagination. You're limiting your creative horizons. And I really can't stress enough Who's defining moral and immoral here? Do you think your judgment is perfect and impartial? We might have good politics in one area, but really bad ones in others. We all have unexamined assumptions about the world that we don't we don't even know that we're making these assumptions. It's just this is the foundation on which we base our understanding and we don't realize it. We all have that. So maybe while we're good and moral in one area, we have these unquestioned assumptions that we don't even know they're there. So if we're trying to make moral art, well, what about those unquestioned assumptions? Maybe we're not perfectly moral. So <laughs> the moral art, quote unquote, that we make is still going to contain these really faulty beliefs. Uh, an example might be, A whole lot of liberals I know are really good when it comes to representation and diversity, but fucking horrendous when it comes to imperialism and war. Real, real bad when it comes to imperialism and war. Because the idea that the United States should have supremacy over the world, they don't really question that. Right. Again, it's one of those sort of intentional blind spots that I think culture sets up for everyone who's going to be born into that culture. Like the unquestioned assumption, of course, the U.S. is a force for global good. Of course. When we invade a country, it's good. Like, Yeah, it's it's, it's some white man's burden stuff that's hung out for a long time. Of course. And we don't even realize it's there. We don't question it a lot of the time. And and when you do have it questioned, it's really hard to get out of that brain. Yeah, that's what it's going to say is people just assume that that is very true, that like people in other countries are clearly savages and we need to lift them out of that, that benighted state. Well, turns out <laughs> we're just going to go over there and really mess stuff up. We're for super people. bad at this. We're not, we're not good but, at it. We do not have a good track record of and, and, fixing things by invading them. And that's not even why we're there, no, right? Like it's just, all. it's the pretense. This is how colonialism right. operates, but... It always has a good cover story, but it it rarely holds up its end of the deal. Absolutely. And I'm going to point out that the emphasis on moral art always hurts marginalized people the hardest. There's pressure on marginalized characters to be exemplary and wholesome and moral. And that shit sucks. It's really boring. And cishet white male creatives don't have that same pressure. You you can get a better call Saul. You can get Walter White. You can get Scarface. You can get Goodfellas. If you're a cishet white man, you can get those and have men who are complex and, and do terrible things and are fascinating, these brilliant character studies. 
but if you're a marginalized person, you have to make someone who's good. And that sucks. We we deserve like a gay Walter White. We deserve a Puerto Rican better call Saul. We deserve these really interesting, nuanced, complex, morally damaged stories of people from marginalized communities. But when you are under this pressure to make good representation and make moral art and avoid harm, then you don't get these things. And that that's not fair. That means we're missing out on so much amazing art. It basically means that you there's jobs you can't do, right? That you will yeah. not be hired for, which is a pretty basic definition of inequality. Wait, as if you're this kind of person, you can't write this kind of story. That that's fucked up. That's just ridiculous. Like, that's obviously wrong. Yeah. And it and it's such a narrow it's such a one-dimensional way to look at art in terms of moral and immoral, in terms of harmful or wholesome. Yeah. I, I, literally, it's just one-dimensional, the dimension of like harm or goodness. And it's a really narrow interpretation of what it means to be good, too, which is to say modeling ideal behavior in a didactic way. There's, there's no sense of, is this beautiful or is it truthful? Like I think a, a story, a work of art that's bad or ugly can point at an important truth. And you're denying that with the emphasis purely on a moral story. Yeah, I think on a fundamental level, it just asks the wrong set of questions too, right? Like it's, it's a red herring. Like I think I'm obviously too deeply influenced by Oscar Wilde, but I tend to agree with what he says in the preface to Dorian Gray. One of the things that he he mentions is there is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written. That's all. Mm. And that's always stayed with me because I think that's fundamentally true because what he's saying, I think, is he's pointing out, look, no, books don't make you a better person if you read them. They don't make you a worse person if you read them. You have to judge them as a work in themselves that's saying something. Are they doing something worthwhile for you, like personally? Does it appeal to you specifically? Are you getting something out of it? And that's how you judge a book. Does it do that for you or doesn't it? And that's all there is to it, right? I don't think we can allow ourselves the freedom to to think that like the book is responsible for my later behavior or my reactions. And I think it's definitely true that we can't hold the author as responsible for those things. Like, we don't think that the music of the Beatles is really responsible for Charlie Manson. Nobody <laughs> really believes that. But in a, a literary context, we let people endorse that idea in ways that I think we should often challenge instead. Right. The Isabel False thing is an absolutely ringing bell example of that, right? It, it wasn't the story that was gone after. It was the person who wrote 100%. it. One hundred percent, and that's sickening. It just it is. was disgusting, yeah. and I've I've never looked the same way at SFF since then. There are people involved in it that I will never respect. Yeah, it, nope, it's not. Gone. It's not going to hurt. Ever. I will never read their books. I will right. never read their short fiction. I will never respect their work. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, there's people who responded in ways that ensured that I will never encounter their works. I, I just, I'm not going to give them money. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to give them money or my time. Yeah. And it's not going to hurt them. 
ultimately. My my $15 for the yeah. paperback is not going to it's not going to harm them. But they harm somebody else, I think. But, yeah. And they'll, again, this is why we need pessimistic endings because shit like this happens and it's not right. fair. And that's the way the world works sometimes, unfortunately. Right. Right. Yeah. So before we go, why don't we recommend some works of degenerate art that can be visual art? It can be a literature. I will start off with Nabokov's Lolita. It is a very challenged book, heavily censored book, and a very disturbing book, and it's beautiful and truthful and brilliant. Yeah, that, that's a book where even if you're carrying it around, the kids will be like, oh, that's People sus. will go like, ew, are you a pedo? No, it's a, it's a fucking brilliant novel that like... tells the story in a way that's astoundingly truthful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so do you want me to go? Yeah. All right. I'm going to say J.G. Ballard's Crash. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a very sexual book, but like none of the sex in it is normal, right? There, there, there is <laughs> not. Right. Yeah, there is not like a single sex scene of which there are many that you would say, oh yeah, that's just what like normal heterosexual couples get up to. It's people who are erotically turned on by car crashes. Hell yeah! Yeah, and Cronenberg made a movie out of that, I think, right? Yes, that is also worth seeing. Like that is, it can't live up to the intensity of the book without being a full-on porno, but right. it's still pretty good. Nice. Okay, I'll go with one. I'll go with a movie. Ken Russell's The Devils. It has been heavily banned. Even even the version of it that's on Shutter is censored. There are a couple of scenes that are censored. There's a scene called The Rape of Christ where some nuns have sex with a Jesus statue. And there, I think, is a scene where... Spoiler alert, uh, Sister Jeannie masturbates with the burnt bone of Father Grandier. Those are not included in the cut that's available on streaming. There's still, it's still an incomplete print of the film. So it's been heavily banned, heavily censored. It's incredibly controversial because it's very blasphemous, but I still think it's a profoundly moral work in a lot of ways. All right, following up on your religious take on this, I'm going to go with a novel by the French decadent author, Yours Carl Wiesmans. It's called La Basse. This is the story of a man who begins to investigate the satanic underworld of Paris in the 19th century. Ooh. And there is a sex scene in it involving communion wafers that is not to be missed. Nice. All right, I'll go next. I'd say William S. Burroughs' The Naked Lunch. It is a book, a novel that doesn't really have a plot so much as it has just an endless procession of depravity. Uh, you, you don't want to read it all at once. It's, it's deeply, deeply, deeply disturbing. And even the film version of it had to be about the creation of the novel, because if you filmed, if you tried to simulate the things that happened in this book and filmed it, you would 100% be arrested. But despite that, I do think it's, it's worth reading because Burroughs did some very interesting things with structure when he wrote, and it is a profoundly influential novel. So I think William S. Burroughs's work is worth a look. Yeah, Burroughs was so influential when I was a kid. I'm going to go with something that is just outright pornography. All right. Uh, Story of O. Oh, wow. I heard about that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's, a, it's an infamous pornographic novel. 
And I think what's really interesting about it is that we know more about the author now than what a contemporary audience would have known at the time. Mm. It's written by a woman. Oh, even, wow. Yeah, even though it is a very like sadomasochistic, uh, probably easy to claim that it's a misogynistic novel, but it's a novel that was written by a woman trying to impress her lover, basically wow. sh showing him that, look, my erotic imagination as a woman is not stunted. Like, I can dream up all the depraved scenarios I know you'll like. I'm not a wilting flower. I can think this way too. And frankly, I think she does it better than male <laughs> authors trying to work in this, this realm, like compared to the Marquis de Sade and it, it comes out on top, I think. So mm. yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It's very intense. It, it pulls no punches whatsoever. Oh, nice. Let's see for a depraved, I keep going to movies. I'm terribly guilty of this, but <laughs> I think Cannibal Holocaust is worth watching. It is, ah, sorry, that's my cat. It is uh, an unpleasant watch. It is disgusting and disturbing. And, and, and in a lot of ways, I think it's a rather racist movie, but it is an incredibly influential horror movie. It's one of the first found footage horror movies. And I think the way it depicts Western imperialism and Western quote unquote journalism, Western explorers is as openly depraved as in a way it should be because Westerners in the global South are that depraved and disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. I'm going to go with Octavia Butler's fledgling. Hmm. So it's it's basically her version of a vampire story, but she does all the things with a vampire story that everyone else is too lily-livered to do, right? Ooh. Like it's got really complicated depiction of race and what that would mean, like in a, a sort of vampire context. It plays with a vampire myth. We're not talking like blood-sucking vampires necessarily who like get the get the curse in a very passionate way, like. It's different. It also does interesting things with like age and the idea of immortality because the main character looks very young, like she still looks like childlike, but she's an adult with an adult's yearnings. So what do you do with that? It also plays with non-typical representations of relationships, like plural marriages or polyamorous relationships. Like it, it's, it depicts vampires as being the antithesis of a status quo in a way that we don't normally get in vampire stories. Hmm. That's interesting. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll go with Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. We did this for a previous book club in our bonus episodes. Join the Patreon if you want to listen to it. But it is a deeply disturbing, deeply upsetting book about the way this one community takes out all of its pain and passes it down to this most vulnerable member of it and there are depictions of horrific things of incest of rape of of terrible violence and it was a widely challenged book it was widely challenged by not just by white audiences but at the time the vogue was for uplifting stories of black triumph and and that's not what this novel is about at all and that sound is again my cat being okay thanks thanks Thanks, Harley. But it's a brilliant novel. I, th I think it was her debut novel, which is even more startling to have a debut novel that 
that's that fucking good. And I think it's truthful and fantastic. All right, I'm, I'm going to riff off of Rape and Incest, which if you've listened to a bunch of bad books for bad people, <laughs> incest is like a running theme on the books that we've encountered. But I want to talk about Matthew Lewis's The Monk. So, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. This is like the great Gothic novels. And it's the one that will completely disabuse you of the notion that the Gothic is all just about fainting women and like overwrought, passionate speeches. Because the monk is really messed up and like disturbing. It's about the downfall of a very religious monastic figure who gets tempted into things like rape and black magic and murder, all for the devil's amusement, which is how the devil would amuse himself. He would. What a jerk. Yeah, what a guy. Nice. And well, fuck, why don't I close it? Why don't I go with my final suggestion being, once again, I'm sure all of my listeners have read this story, but if you can find a copy of it floating around the ether, look for Isabel Falls, I Sexually Identify as an Attack Helicopter. Because it's a, it's a good, solid fucking story. And I'm really, really, really pissed off that a bunch of moralistic dipshits robbed the world of this really interesting new voice. And I'm so, I, I'm will never fucking forgive the sci-fi fantasy community for what they did to her. Yeah, no, it, it sucks. Right. Like I, I was thinking about like things I would like to teach. And that was on my short list of things I want to add to a syllabus. And then it just was not, available like I, I ultimately found where i could see this thing and make my own copy people are passing like, it around yeah but what a fucked up situation where something that like i think should be studied whether you get something out of it or not it's worth talking about and people ha have retracted it from our 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 intellects our ability to speak on a piece of art that's criminal it's not even on the internet wayback machine anymore Right. Yeah. That's really like next level memory holding it. That's fucked. Yeah, no. Can't can't get behind that. Yeah. Yeah, so but it's floating around out there. People keep copies of it. Yeah, it's, it's See like See if a... you can hunt down a copy of it and read it cuz it's good. It it's good. It deserves to be seen. She Isabel Fall deserves an award nomination for for writing that she certainly deserves it more than most of the people nominated for awards in sff her voice absolutely deserves to be heard and fuck anybody who tried to silence her <laughs> yeah absolutely fuck them oh my god all right so why don't we wrap it up because we've been talking for oh my god an hour and a half where can our listeners find your work well, if you want more of me talking about bad books, which often includes the category of degenerate art, you can find my podcast with my friend Tenebris Kate. Look for Bad Books for Bad People. Look, you're all adults. You know how to find podcasts at this point. <laughs> Type it into Google. It'll be there for you. Give us a listen. You'll find some books that you'll either hate or mysteriously become obsessed with. And if you like spooky D&D zines, you can find my big cartel shop. It's called Dolores Exhumations. So find that. Zines are very cheap. <laughs> so if you feel the need, send some money that way. Uh, yeah, but thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. It was sure. fun. Yeah, no problem. And thank you, audience, for listening. 
If you like what you heard, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash writegood. Subscribers get bonus episodes and access to the very excellent Kitty Sneezes Discord, which is shaping up to be a pretty great writing community. And be sure to listen to us next time when we talk about modern mythology. Until then, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley from KS Media LLC. Theme song by Surgery Head. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. KittySneezes.com in color. <laughs>